And uh, as we approach uh, the concluding uh, chapter and a half, not even a half, I guess the last chapter and a third of the book of Romans. Oh, you need to switch up, right? This one seems okay. Oh. We've been having trouble with this one out of the way. he thinks about his life and ministry. It is in some ways the apostles um, philosophy of ministry displayed in his priorities. This is what he does. This is his intention and this is how he's going to accomplish the very things that he wants to accomplish because this is his mission. So that's again we call it this morning we're looking at uh, Romans 15 22 to 33, and we're calling it Paul's passion for gospel ministry. Because it is Paul, and there's some things that are particular to Paul, but I think there's some things that are there that are for everyone that calls upon the name of Jesus Christ. I, I, I think if we could distill it this way, and we'll unpack it this way, that a desire to, to be consistent with our salvation in Jesus Christ is a desire to be gospel-centric. But that means two things. One, it means that there is a gospel proclamation. There's a desire to, to, to proclaim the truth of salvation and life to the unbelieving world. We can call that mission. We can call that evangelism. But there is that commitment. That's one part of it. The ministry of the gospel to the unbelieving. But the second part that we shouldn't miss is, is Paul's emphasis, and it should be every Christian's emphasis, on the ministry of the gospel to fellow believers, to genuine fellowship or edification. 
I keep not wanting to use the word fellowship, but that is the best word, and you will see that it comes up even in this passage. But fellowship implies not just hanging out, right, with other Christians, not just, you know, having a Super Bowl party or, or, or eating lunch. Fellowship implies that there is a building up, a caring for, supporting one another, sharing each other's burdens, and sharing life together as believer and believer. That even though we come from such different backgrounds, maybe different ages, different cultures, uh, different uh, expressions of how we worship or, or any of those things, with all of our differences, there's a common thing that binds us that is thicker than blood. We have all come to faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and for eternal life. That's what we call one another brothers and sisters in Christ. Because there is now no distinction. There's distinctions, you know. I'm probably stronger than you. Mo most of you. No, no, I'm pretty sure all of you. Right? But, right? I might, be, I might be stronger, you might be taller, right? I might be fatter, whatever. There's distinctions among us. But nevertheless, the thing that binds us is the gospel. And we're going to see that bleed out in Paul's passion. Um, last time we met together, it's been a while, uh, we looked at uh, verses 14 through 21, and we talked about the contours, the shape of Paul's missionary heart. And today, it's really about his passion for gospel ministry and how it impacts his evangelism, his mission to the unbelieving, and then also his ministry, his fellowship, his encouragements to those that are of faith. Paul's passion for gospel ministry. Let me just pray for us because it's, it's a lot of verses and we need to work through this fairly quickly. So let me pray and then we'll start in um, with our outline. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this time around your scriptures this morning. We praise you for the songs that we sung, the prayers that were lifted, for the amens of this fellowship as we gather together and we recognize together the greatness of our God, the Ancient of Days, and what he has done for us in delivering us from the domain of darkness and sin into the realm of, of his holy light through Jesus Christ what it means that you love us with a love that is undeserved and unending and how that should transform each one of us to live in a manner that is not like our neighbors that not like the unbelieving world but there's something distinctive about our purposes our focus our life and our foundation we pray for your grace to us that even as we gather around your scriptures now and then around the Lord's table as a visible reminder of his death, his resurrection, and the salvation you give to us in him, that we are thankful for all good things that come from your gospel to us. We praise you for these things and for the Apostle Paul and his example to us of what it means to live as if the gospel was everything. May we mimic him as he follows the things of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So it's about Paul's passion for gospel ministry, and we're going to just look at two major, I think, subsections that, that we're, going to, we're going to focus mostly on the first in verses 22 to 29, and that's the focus of his gospel ministry. Then the last part is really a prayer. It's the foundation of gospel success, and that, that is really um, abiding together in prayer. But let's take a look at the first part. The focus of gospel ministry, starting in verse 22 through 24. Paul demonstrates, I think, a commitment, a focus to the gospel. 
And he does that, like I said, in two phases, to the unbelieving world and also to the believing world. And you see both of those mingled together. We should understand that they're intentionally mingled together because that's Paul's heart. The gospel is everything to him. And human beings he relates to, he relates to because of the gospel. They're either unbelieving ones that he wants to share the gospel, the good news of Christ and his salvation to, or they're believing ones whom he wants to encourage and build up and and join together and embrace and let them know we are in this together. So those are the two avenues of ministry, the unbelieving and the believing, and that's what we mean by gospel ministry. But here, starting in verse 22, we see how he prioritizes the gospel mission particularly the mission of evangelism to the lost, and how in some ways, if he has to choose, he chooses that even over the fellowship of believers. He has a clear commitment for mission. And all the while, he hopes for Christian fellowship and partnership and encouragement. So this is what it looks like. Starting in verse 22, it says, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions and since I have long for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. He is prioritizing gospel mission and I'm saying that because the first thing he says is there's a reason that I have been hindered from coming to you. He has expressed even in chapter 1 that he has this desire to come and minister among them and to them and be ministered by them. So from the opening of the letter, he said, I want to meet you. I haven't met you face to face. And I am encouraged by all that you are doing for the Lord. And I want to give you a blessing if I can. And I want to be blessed by you if I can. That's the gospel, right, ministry of one another. That is the fellowship we're talking about. But he says, the reason why I have not been able to come to you. In fact, he uses the term, I have been hindered. Not not that... That, that, that he has, you know, intentionally or has purposely just kind of brushed them aside, but that he has a strong desire to come, but he's been stopped because of his mission, because of his focus. If we look up a few verses to uh, Romans 15, verse 20 and 21, this is what we saw last time. He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This isn't Paul saying that this is what every Christian needs to do. He's saying that 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 is his ministry mission focus. He wants to plant churches where people have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he is trying to do that, he has not found opportunity to visit the Roman Christians because he's busy church planting in unreached people groups. That's how he's hindered. So you see, there's a focus, there's a commitment that he wants to plant churches where the gospel has not been proclaimed. Can I say this about Paul? It's clear that it's not lost on him that he has a short time on this planet. You know why I say that? I don't know how Paul is at at this point in his ministry as he's writing this letter to the Romans. But he was a Pharisee by training. That, That doesn't come quickly. There, there's no 20-something-year-old Pharisees, right? Today, we might have, you know, theologically trained individuals that graduate seminary in their 20s. Back then, it was closer to your 40s that you were trained and a full-fledged 
Pharisees. So, so let's say he was a Pharisee for a while, began persecuting the church. The Lord rescues him when he sees a vision of the Lord on the road to, to Damascus, right? And then all of life changes, and he begins this journey of gospelizing the lost. He's probably my age, probably in his 50s. Right? And as he is in his 50s, it's not lost on him, I think, that he has a purpose and a mission. And though he would love to visit with these Roman Christians because they're doing well, they're proclaiming the gospel, they're standing for the things of Christ, and he wants to go and encourage them. Nevertheless, he has a singular focus to take the gospel to the lost because he probably knows he doesn't have that much time. I love that. And for all the gray hairs among us, I count myself in that group, right? Um, we were at uh, um, Gary's mom's funeral this, this weekend, and we saw a lot of old friends. I haven't seen some of those guys uh, that, that, you know, we grew up with in Gardena for a long time. And I was just joking with them how we're all just old men, right? And we are. All of our hairs are gray. Gary's is a little less gray than most, right? But a lot of the bros, man, their hair is more gray than me. And so there's a bunch of white hairs, gray hairs. I love that. But as we get older, should it dawn on us more that we have such less time to serve the Lord and the purpose right, of His glory through His gospel message and ministry in this life? He says, for this reason. Why? Because I am so singularly focused on taking the gospel to the, to the unreached. I've been hindered from coming to you. But look at verse 22. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. A couple things that he mentions there that we want to capture right away. One, he says, I no longer have any work, right, any room for work in these regions. And I think what he means by that is not that there are no longer any unbelievers here. He means that there's no longer a need for him as the apostle to the unreached to remain there where he is because churches have been established. I don't think it's a stretch to say that was his missionary priority. Preach the gospel, find people, train them up over the years, let that church be a healthy church and then leave, and let that church take care of that area. And every church that is built up is meant to be that. It was about planting churches and letting them gospelize their area. And so it, as far as he's concerned, as a pioneer missionary, he feels like he's good. He's done. This region it has churches, and they could do the rest of this work. I want to go someplace else. In particular, he names a region like Spain. So we know Spain is not the center of Europe. It's not even near the center of Europe as it may be today. It was considered the outer reaches of the known world. This is Paul saying that there is work to be done, and I heard there are individuals in a place called Spain. I intend to go there, share the gospel, plant churches, and do the work there. He says, so since the work here, in terms of my work in establishing churches that are healthy and will proclaim the gospel in these regions are done and secured, and since I have for many years longed to come see you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. I think one thing we've got to ask ourselves is why. Not why Spain. We can talk about that in a moment, right? But, but why does he have such a longing to see these Christians? I mean, he just said, right, he made it clear that he has this pioneer missionary appetite where he wants to go to unreached groups. This is a reached community. This is a church in Rome. 
Why is Paul looking to go and visit those guys? And it's, again, because there's a two-pronged approach to gospel ministry. One is evangelism, but the other is fellowship and encouragement. As far as Paul is concerned, here is a healthy, strong, vibrant church whose individuals he has never met face to face. And he is longing to see these fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. In Romans 1, like I said, when he opens the letter, he says, As God is my witness, in verse 9, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Paul is saying that I regularly pray for you Roman Christians, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He has a desire to see them. And he says, Why? For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He wants to edify them, to build them up. And that is, verse 12, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. See, not lost in his focus for the mission work is his desire to connect with fellow believers, to encourage and to build up the body of believers wherever they may be found. There is both. Now, one takes priority because he is a pioneer, right? Apostle to the Gentiles. But nevertheless, when it comes to churches, he has a longing to connect with people, with Christians, with brothers, with sisters, to be encouraged by them and to, fellow, and to encourage them, right? Fellow believers in the things of Jesus Christ. Verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. And so verse 24 tells us something about what that fellowship, what that encouragement to one another might look like. He has a hope, he says, to see them, and then from then to be helped on his journey. It literally means to be sent forward. And I don't know why, this is the way I think of it, being a child from the, from the 80s. Do you guys know what roller derby is? It's a shame. It, it was good stuff. It, it wasn't that good stuff. Think, of, think about like um, WWE wrestling, like kind of the fake in, 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 you know, enjoyment of, of these guys like throwing each other around, but on roller skates. That's roller derby. So, you know, and you think about it now, and as a kid, I loved it, but I think about it now, it's so dumb, right? But what you do is these guys, two teams are just skating around this roller rink, and they try to knock each other over and stuff, right? That's really it. And then I, I can't even remember. I think you have to do a certain number of laps. And the whole time you're trying to knock each other off, right? But this is the slingshot that they would do. Like they'd have one speedster and they'd come. And as they're coming, like I'd be waiting for them, my teammate. And I would grab them and I would propel them even further forward. Now in real life, you don't really need that, right? Like you could just, just kind of you know, push yourself. But nevertheless, it had that effect of us thinking like, now this is like I'm going forward. My momentum is already there. And you're propelling me even faster, and this is what Paul's imagery is. He's saying, I have an intention to go to the ends of the earth, to Spain. And I'm hoping that I would stop by on my way and that you, as I have that momentum going, that you would grab me by the arm and you would propel me even faster. Because this is a partnership. Paul's not just reaching the world with the gospel just because he's Paul. It's about Christians aiding one another. It's about churches supporting other church work. It's about churches supporting the missionary cause in the world in their generation. We have a responsibility to the evangelism of this entire world in our generation. 
I'm not responsible for the evangelism of the world in a past generation. I hope to set some things in place that would help evangelize the world in a future generation. But we have a responsibility to this generation, to this work, and to those people that are taking the gospel to the unbelievers of our generation. But look at the other part. I want to be propelled forward by you, right, in verse 24. But that last phrase, once I've enjoyed your company for a while. And let's be honest. Paul might sound like a stick in the mud sometimes, right? I mean, he uses language like propitiation, and we're like, what? You know? Everything's justification, justification. What? Like, why is he so technical and theological about something? Because he's really smart, and that's true. But when it comes right down to it, when he talks about fellowship, he speaks of it with joy. He says, once, I, I want to be propelled. I want you to grab me and push me even forward more. But even in doing that, not until we have had a satisfying and enjoyable time of company together. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. And you listen... Every Christian needs to underline that concept in their minds. Especially you more rigid, kind of, I don't know, a little bit more intense spiritual Christian. God has not put you here to convict everybody of their sin. Now the Holy Spirit does that work, right? You know why you're here? To encourage, yeah, to help, to sometimes uh, to correct, but always to find joy and the delight of having the same common Savior and purposes in this world. See, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about joyful fellowship. We're talking about just talking. We're talking about catching up, sharing our burdens, praying for one another, right? Telling our stories of our evangelistic adventures and how people rejected us or some people wanted to hear more. Talking about God and finding great delight in our common purpose and in our common Savior our common Lord. See, so there's mission, and Paul has a clear priority for gospel mission, but in the midst of that, he still cares deeply about supporting, edifying, building up with great affection the body of believers. That's what we mean by he prioritizes gospel mission. The second thing we see under this gospel ministry focus is that he bridges, he bridges gospel fellowship. He bridges gospel fellowship. Take a look at the, the next verse there, verse uh, 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. So he has a commitment not just to taking the gospel to the unreached, but also to caring for Christians wherever he may find them. But in particular here, it's about bridging, right? A group of believers and churches out here in Macedonia and Achaia, right? and Jerusalem and that church there. So he says, presently, this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm gathering gracious aid. I'm gathering monies to help support fellow Christians in Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. You might think, okay, so what's going on? This shouldn't be confused with the famine relief that was mentioned in another part of the book of Acts. This is Paul gathering over a year amongst the different churches, their resources, their material resources, to take to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem's not Rome. Jerusalem's not, right? 
I mean, Jerusalem, we think of as the center of spiritual life because that's where the Lord was. That's where the temple was. That's where the old covenant situated itself. And then now, as new covenant, New Testament believers, we kind of always think about the goodness of Jerusalem, Zion, Israel, etc. And that's truth, right? There's spiritual reality. That's where the gospel began. But if you take just the, the general social economic status of all the nations at that time, where does Jerusalem fit as a metropolis? They're poor. Not just they're kind of underprivileged, but no one thought about them unless you were a Christian or Jew. Right? Rome was the capital maybe of the world. Antioch was well established, right? Corinth was known for its opulence. Jerusalem? They're poor, man. It's the ghetto of societies. Yes, it's where the gospel began, but they had very little material wealth. It's not surprising that after Pentecost, and so many came to faith, that wealthy believers are selling property and taking their capital. And what were they doing with it? They were spending it to feed all the new converts. You probably wouldn't have had to do that if you were in Rome. Because most of those guys probably had wealth and were okay. Even if they were not wealthy, they could probably provide for their own. They were the impoverished of society. In fact, even amongst the Jews, before the gospel and before the conversion, and before Christ, um, the Jewish people that were spread throughout the world often sent money gifts back to Jerusalem to help feed the poor in Jerusalem. That's what the Jewish people did. So now there are Christians, particularly Jewish Christians, who had come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior in Jerusalem. So in a poor city, they would be the poorest of the poor, and obviously the Jewish people who are very antagonistic to the gospel would not help feed or care for these Christian Jewish people. So of all the people in Jerusalem, they needed the most help. They were the neediest group. And this is Paul connecting all the churches right, and their resources to help Christians there. You can read about that, like in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, how uh, there's a collection for the saints that he said, on the first day of every week, as you meet, you know, collect something, and I'll come and get it, and we're going to take it with emissaries to Jerusalem. See, it became a test case of the relationship of gospel unity among churches. How do we care for one another? How do we love one another? Because listen, it is t- it is today it is the same as then. It is easy to be overly lopsided, to be too black and white, too left or right. It's easy for us to say, well, I'm of the universal church. This is probably more common for us today than in that day. But, you know, I'm, I'm saved by the blood of Christ. I'm a Christian. So in a general sense, I'm part of Christ's body throughout the universe and the world. And so since I'm a Christian, that's all I need to be. I don't need this church. I can just go to any church. I can stream church online. Right? I could listen to this guy sometimes. I could listen to this guy sometimes. I could, you know, maybe I want to go visit a church, but even if I don't, I still am a Christian. I kind of enjoy the general, right, universal church wherever I feel like going because I'm a general, universal follower of Christ. There's a lot that's wrong with that attitude, but that's one side of the extreme. The other side of the extreme is to think that I am part of a church, the church. There's no other church. And you hear that sometimes amongst brothers and sisters of Christ who I love dearly because they love their church so much, but they talk sometimes like they have the only truth, you know? I've talked to pastors in some areas 
where I, um, I, I would ask them, hey, listen, can you, can you give me just a small list of, of good gospel-preaching churches? They don't have to be just like us. They don't have to be perfectly committed <clears throat> to all the same things doctrinally as we are. But I just want to make sure they're a gospel-preaching church. They're faithful to the gospel. Because uh, these are near college towns, and I want you know, sometimes parents ask, and I want to recommend at least a gospel-preaching church, right, for their unbelieving kids that are attending the, the, these colleges or are living in these areas. And there's one brother that I asked that to. He said, no, there, there's none. I said, no, 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 no brother. I'm, I'm not asking are there other master seminary trained, you know, like exactly like I'm just, I'm just saying, are there Christians, you know, preaching the gospel, telling people they got to get saved and they're sinners, right? No, I can't think of one. I was like, oh, okay. And I got to be honest with you. I was judging that guy in my heart, right? Right, because I'm like, you're telling me, right? And this this particular brother was uh, ministering like um, up in Northern California along the the coast, and I said, I'm thinking in my heart, like you're telling me in a stretch of about 200 miles, there's not a gospel speaking body of Christians anywhere. I'm not asking for their doctrinal statement to be perfectly aligned to mine. I'm asking, do they believe in the gospel? Are they brothers and sisters in Christ? Could they competently share the gospel with someone? And there is none? See, it's easy for us to be so self-focused and have our church be the only kingdom. It bleeds out sometimes in our conversations when we think about, well, what do we do, right, about, you know, missionaries and other ministries outside of ourselves. And we might think to ourselves, well, you know, they come second. They do. We have a moral proximity, right, to care for those that are in our charge that are presently near to us. That's true. But guys, we are part of a network of God's people throughout the world. You don't want to be either. You don't want to be that I, I'm, I'm a general Lone Ranger Christian because I'm part of God's universal church. I think that's sin. You're not gathered with any group of believers. And Paul, even though he's an itinerant preacher and apostle, still desires desperately to be connected with people whenever he can. Because it's about the body of Christ. And then you don't want to be, this is the only church in the world. If you don't go to this church, then, you, then I don't know. I'm not sure about your faith, right? Why, why, why would you date anybody outside of this church? That's crazy. There, there's hardly any Christians outside this church, right? We, we need to be balanced. We need to commit ourselves to a local church. And we had an entire series on a healthy local church. And we said, one of the things we talked about was the importance of genuine conversion and membership. These are true and excellent and wondrous things that combine and bring us together in fellowship. But we also have a responsibility to others. This is what Paul is doing. He's going to Jerusalem to bring aid, monetary help for the saints. And he emphasized that there are saints over and over throughout this particular passage. Right? They are fellow believers, holy ones, cleansed by the blood of Christ, just like you and I. So verse 26, he says, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. It is. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 speak much about those contributions and about their generosity and how even beyond what they should have maybe given, they were giving because they wanted to take part in that love gift and the relief of the saints. And it's in 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9. It's in that same context that God makes it clear that he loves the cheerful giver. And these guys were joyful. They were pleased. It means to take great pleasure in. It put a smile on their face to participate in the contribution of the poor in Jerusalem. 
Man, they weren't like, oh my gosh, these guys are asking for handouts too. They're glad to participate. And it's because there is an obligation of love for all those that are connected to one another through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at the obligation as Paul spells it out in verse 27. He says, for they were pleased to do it. He emphasized that twice now, that they're pleased to contribute. And indeed, they owe it to them. Now he emphasizes something different, that they were in some ways indebted to them, to the Jerusalem church. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also be of service to them in material blessings. You see Paul's argument? His argument is, where's the, where did the gospel start? It started amongst the Jews in Jerusalem, and the church began at Pentecost. Well, if that's where it began, if that's where the message started to populate, if that's the case, then you guys are believing churches here in Corinth, in Rome. Why? Because it began spiritually there. So is there not some kind of a love offering, some kind of a love obligation to those that are our spiritual big brothers and big sisters? Now listen, we need to be careful here. The term indebted for many of us will sound exactly like works righteousness, right? It'll sound like a requirement, right? Obligation sounds like if you don't do it, if you don't pay your tax to the mother church, then you're not being good churches. And I don't think that's what Paul meant. Especially because, again, if you read in the context of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, <clears throat> Paul repeatedly calls this act of generosity, he calls it an act of grace. We're gathering an act of grace, Right? He calls it that, that you are excelling in this act of grace in terms of your benevolent gift. And he reminds them that you should know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ for you, that he's rich, and yet he became poor for your sake so that you might be rich. And you see, there's a spiritual principle of caring for those that have cared for you in any way. And so he is encouraging them again and again to give thankfully, graciously, joyfully, and that it should never be an obligation that feels like I have to, but there should be an obligation that's based on I'd love to. Right? It's an obligation of love. I like what John Murray says. He says, charity is an obligation, but it is not a tax. And can I say this for all of us, just by way of application, even in terms of our offering? Most of us have kind of uh, shifted gears uh, since the pandemic to online giving. And so our family too, our, our gift to the church, right? Our regular gift to the church, weekly gift, is just taken out, right? Like you could send an amount and it's just taken out weekly. I, I love the convenience of it. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, etc. But I'm mindful that if I'm not careful, I just think of it as a fee, right? Like all my other fees, because I, I do bills that way. Right? I, I'm not, if you ask me right now, how much do you pay for electricity? I don't know. It just gets taken out of my account, just like my offering to the Lord, right? It just, it just goes, and I think even if you're using things like that for convenience, I don't think there's any sin in that. I think that there is an obligation for us to think carefully to make sure that it's still with cheer, with joy, with graciousness, and with an act of love so that it doesn't feel like a fee or a tax. But it still feels like obligation, but a grace obligation that is built on our love for Christ and for His church. Finally, in verse 28, the focus of the gospel ministry is that Paul prioritized gospel mission. And he's bridging these Gentile churches with the needs of the Jerusalem church. He's bridging gospel fellowship. And the third, 
his share in Christ's fullness. Look at verse 28 and 29. <clears throat> when therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will see or I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. He has a commitment to continue his mission all the while finding opportunities for the fullness of the blessing of Christ shared in fellowship. So this is what I'm saying. This is a repeated thing that kind of runs parallel and intersects and sometimes diverges in Paul. is evangelism for the lost, but also fellowship, encouragement for fellow believers. And the way he thinks of it, there's a, a sense of Christ's fullness, what Christ has blessed him with, that gets to be shared when he sees them. He, he contrasts two things in the beginning of verse 28. One is, I am leaving, and the other, in verse 29, is I am coming. There's a leaving and an arriving. The leaving is this. He says, when I have completed this, taking this aid to Jerusalem, and had delivered to them what has been collected, then I am leaving for Spain by way of you. By way of you can be literally translated through you. Just dia. It's just a, you know, preposition through. It's a great statement. He is saying, I'm leaving through Spain via Roman Christians. Right? That's my hope. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go right through you and get there that way. Earlier he said, it's like I'm going to be running past you and you're going to grab my arm and propel me even further. But his whole point is that I'm leaving for Spain. The mission continues, but it will continue through you. I'm not forgetting you. I'm desiring to connect and to share with you. Because he says this. I know, and this is verse 29, that when I come to you, this is the arriving now, that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. This is why it's so important for him to stop in Rome on his way to Spain. Because he wants to get there and encourage them, to build them up, to share about the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And listen, what does that sound like? What, what is that, how does that resonate to your soul when you think about sharing the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Let, let me tell you that to some, in some ways, to me it sounds like pleasantness, joy, right? It sounds like security and what the Lord is doing in my life. It sounds like prosperity and everything good, and I, I don't think that's entirely what Paul meant. You know why? Because I think he's correct that he intends to arrive with the fullness of the blessing of Christ, but we know from Acts 20 and 21 how he will arrive in Rome. He'll arrive in chains. What's going to happen in Jerusalem, and we'll see this in a minute in his prayer, but what's going to happen in Jerusalem is that Judaizers have seeded hatred against Paul, and as a result, this murderous, riotous crowd wants to take his life so that the magistrates take over, the civil authorities get involved, and eventually he goes to different courts and he has to eventually appeal to Caesar, meaning that he gets to be heard by the court of Caesar himself, which suggests that he needs to go to Rome. He arrives in Rome in chains. Would that be in the fullness of the blessing of Christ? Well, only if the fullness of the blessing of Christ is not merely an issue of freedom or prosperity or security or perfect pleasantness or health. Only if the fullness of the blessing of Christ is something deeper and more significant spiritually and by identity and by purpose, then is everything going really well in my life? Because if it's about everything being good externally, 
circumstantially, then his hope came to falsehood. But if the fullness of the blessing of Christ is the security of the gospel and eternal life and the power to find contentment in any circumstance, to find our identity in Christ to where we are, we are literally spiritually bulletproof so that even if someone's not lovely, we can love them. That even if someone's not helpful, we can still be helpful to them. That we could be individuals that are outside of what we would expect because of who Christ is in us. That should be the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Let me paint it for you this way. Parents, the fullness of the blessing of Christ is not a promise that your children would have success, would go to good colleges, would live the American dream, and give you lots of grandkids. I mean, listen, I, I, I would be incredibly honored and thankful to the Lord if all of those came true for all of us as parents. But that's not the fullness of God's blessing for you as a parent. It's for you to stand for the things of the Lord and to do the best you can by His grace to encourage these young ones to know that you live for something that is deeper than just success, consumption, and leisure. Listen, for you single people, right? The fullness of Christ is not just a promise to provide you that excellent and perfect job that pays you incredible amounts of money for doing very little work. There, there might be some out there, but so far I've not seen it, right? That, that will provide you that perfect marriage and give you the only other sinless person besides Jesus Christ that has ever walked on the face of the planet. Highly unlikely. Or that will give you a family and all the blessings that, that in your mind that you envision what a happy life in this world looks like. That is not the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Those are blessings. They may be blessings. I hope they are blessings for you. But even if none of those come to pass, you as a believer still experience the fullness of the blessing of Christ and what He has done for your soul. What He has done to establish your worth, your identity, your purpose. This is what the gospel is for us. We are exactly what God has desired us to be imperfectly, but boldly, passionately, full of life because we have our Savior and we have one another. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe you're a young person in your perspective in terms of the fullness of the blessing of Christ. For you, you're not guaranteed a future of leisure and consumption. You're not guaranteed you're going to be a YouTube star. Right? Every young person wants to. I'm sure some of you might. I don't know, right? I watch these guys like do perfect and stuff. They just horse around and get hundreds of millions of views. I'm like, that's awesome. That might be the job where you don't do too much and get paid a ton of money. I don't know. I don't know. But I'm just saying as a young person, your perspective on what it means to have the fullness of the blessing of Christ is not merely that your life will go well because Paul's life will not go well. And yet he is convinced just showing up even in house arrest in Rome will result in him sharing the blessing, the fullness of the blessing of who Christ is for him and that he will in return receive the fullness of the blessing of Christ from them. That it's deeper than simply circumstance and what I want in this life because I have the one thing that I need in this life and for the life to come.
See, this is what it means to live a life of focus, a focused life of gospel ministry. It means prioritizing gospel mission. It means bridging gospel fellowship. It means sharing Christ's fullness because of what he has done for us. The second one, and we are able to work through this fairly quickly because it's a short prayer, is the foundation of gospel success. What would be, what would be the means by which these things will be successful? And Paul makes it pretty clear, I think. The foundation of gospel success is united prayer. First is an appeal to united prayer in verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Just two things I want to emphasize. The appeal. Parakaleo, it's that term to encourage or sometimes to exhort. Appeal is an excellent term because it means that he is saying not just I'm strongly suggesting this. I really recommend that you get the nuts on top of that Sunday, right? This isn't just this a kind of a good suggestion. This is him saying, listen, this is a necessity, mine and yours. He is saying, I appeal to you, brothers. Why? Because you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I appeal to you, and look at what he appeals to by. I appeal to you, I encourage, I exhort you, I demand of you, by our Lord Jesus Christ, it's an issue of service to our Lord, and by the love of the Spirit, it's an issue of obligation of love based on the Spirit's work in us and our one anothering. I appeal to you by our Lord and by the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Strive together is a word that literally is a combination of together and agonize. He's not saying, hey, I just want you to join when you have time, like when you're saying grace, you know? Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. Oh, Lord, and pray for Pastor Nam. Amen. Let's dig in, right? He is saying, agonize with me. Feel this with me. Struggle in prayer. This is the way that he is expressing it. That there is a very real spiritual struggle going on between the forces of good and evil. And the most significant part of that struggle that we might add to is in our prayer for and with one another. I don't know, even as you come to our worship service, I don't know if you, you know, just kind of used to like the order of worship and you hear the different prayers and you just kind of like, amen. Maybe you're thinking about, you know, your football team and how poorly they're doing. Maybe your football team has lost three games in a row. They were projected to go to the Super Bowl. Let's stop. Let's stop. Maybe you're distracted by something else and then you just kind of hear part of the prayer and you just say amen, right? But you're supposed to participate. This is listen to what we're articulating about who God is and what He is capable of doing. What are we asking the Lord to do? Who, what region of the world are we asking the Lord to reach with the gospel? What, what other Christians and churches are we lifting up and saying, Lord, would you bless them like you bless us? Who are we praying for? What are we praying for? What do we want the Lord to do? And if it's just leisure and consumption, shame on you. Every unbeliever desires that. Go wish that. Like, I don't know, throw pennies in a, in a well or something and wish for that like everyone else does. You want to pray and join together and agonize together for the things of Christ? Then come together and pray for the cause of Christ in this world, in this church, in this community. I appeal to united prayer. This is Paul. This is mission-dependent 
that we pray together and we agonize together before God on behalf of our missionaries, on behalf of Paul. I appeal to united prayer. And then there's the particular request. Verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Two elements of his particular request, rescue, that may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, right? And unity, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable. Uh, just say a couple words on this, that I might be delivered, right? Suggest that Paul knows how difficult this is going to be. How difficult was it going to be? Well, you could set aside in the book of Acts even the Ephesian elders praying and saying, hey, they're going to mess you up and this is going to be the beginning of the end, etc. Right? But Acts 20, verse 22, this is what Paul says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, this is Paul, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Was Paul surprised? Not at all. In fact, he is encouraging prayer for these Roman Christians to say, hey, pray for my deliverance. Pray for my deliverance. Pray for my rescue, not for avoidance of difficulties. He knows the difficulties are going to come. He's asking for rescue so his mission might continue. And the second thing he's asking for is that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. It's all right. So the first thing I'm thinking about is, why would it not be acceptable? He's bringing money, right, to help the poor Christians in Jerusalem. What Christians are going to say, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Where's that money from? You know, why are you bringing so much money to us? Who's thinking that way? And this is what Leon Morris, who is much wiser than I, says. He says, we must bear in mind that the Jerusalem church appears to have been very conservative. That was where the view... Um, that was held most strongly held by the Gentile, that the Gentile believers must be circumcised and taught to observe the law of Moses. That's where it began. Paul was regarded by some members of the Jerusalem church as a dangerous innovator, a man who was disobeying God and his laws and telling even Jewish Christians to abandon their heritage. Right? So the money that Paul brought might be seen, as, might be seen by some as a bribe to kind of gentilize, right? make it to the nations to change, right, the heritage of these Jewish Christians and their Jewish Messiah. The Jerusalemites might think that by accepting this money, they'd be endorsing everything that's bad about Paul and the Gentiles. There, there is room for schism, right? And Paul knew this, and so he's praying that there wouldn't be a schism, because by the time we get to Jerusalem, Acts 21, Judaizers already spread the lie that Paul was telling every Jewish Christian to abandon their Judaic background. Forget the Old Testament. It's all about the new. And as a result of that, some even accused him falsely of bringing a Gentile into the Jewish temple and defiling the temple. So then the mob gets crazy. They want to kill him. They want to take him outside and beat him and stone him to death outside the city. And so... so Clashes are happening. Things are going crazy. And the city magistrates come and arrest Paul. And then they're trying to figure out what's going on. And that begins his arrest. You see, his request was with full knowledge. He's going to get in trouble. And he's asking for rescue. So the mission continues. He's asking for unity because the church has the potential of splitting along lines that are unnecessary and ridiculous. 
and he's hoping for unity even in the bringing of this gift. And he holds out for the hope of joyful fellowship. Verse 32, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company, that I would come again, the arrival with joy and find refreshment. And the combination of arriving with joy and finding refreshment in the company of the Roman Christians to me is a hope for joyful fellowship, yes, but really for renewal, for refueling. He knows it's going to be bad. That's why he asked them to rescue, for, for God to rescue him, to pray that. He knows that there is potential disunity and he's asking that, that God would deliver him and deliver the churches from any kind of disunity. He knows it's going to be difficult. And with all of that, he's thinking, if I could come to these Christians in Rome, we would share a moment of joy and of refreshment. It literally means to lie together. It implies that we just kind of sit around and we kind of go, whew, that was, that was a long day. That was a long season. And find refueling for the mission that must continue to Spain. The last thing, and we'll finish with this, the blessing of peace. Look at verse 33, and it's his closing benediction, just a simple blessing. He says, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And the reason why I think this is significant is because depending on the particular attribute that the prayer wants to emphasize, if I, if I am praying over the lost, I might pray for the grace of God, right, in His holiness, to love those that are unlovable and sinful. If I'm praying for the sick, I might pray for the love of God and His sovereignty, even over sickness and in mortality, and that He might rescue this individual. You pray according to the particular attribute that fits what you're asking for. And Paul seems to think that the attribute of God most necessary in this prayer is peace. That what we are after is a unity and a peacefulness that comes from knowing that the gospel is real. The gospel is not just a proclamation of some idea. It is the truthfulness of that transformation that that, that, that message brings. And the truthfulness of that message, that transformation of the gospel, means that every gospel-changed individual has a connection one to another. So there's gospel mission, proclamation to the world, and there's gospel fellowship the building up and refreshment of one another in the body of believers. And that seems to be God's giving of the gospel and its ministry to us. And we're going to transition into time of communion. If, uh, if you haven't received uh, your, your special cup and biscuit, right? Um, you can raise your hand and the ushers get that for you. And as a, as a worship team comes forward, just want to remind you of what communion is. There is nothing supernatural that happens in terms of the elements as far as communion is concerned. What communion is, is a remembrance of Christ's death on the cross for us. And that that death was enough to not just cleanse us of our sin if we repent and place our faith in Him, but it is able to take us into a new relationship, a new covenant relationship with God the Father. Where we should be judged, we are now cleaned and made new. So when we take of the table together, we do it always together, not individually, because this is the body of Christ gathered to take and to remember together visibly in a physical act the death of Jesus Christ, His resurrection, right? And the evidence that, that He has died for our sins. So if you're not a Christian or you're not sure of your salvation, please do not take of Holy Communion. It's a symbol for those that understand the gospel. So it's only for those that understand the gospel. 
It's for those that have proclaimed publicly all right, their faith in Christ, in baptism, and according to their faith, that they are members of the body of Christ. So as you take and prepare, take a moment just to pray, to sing with us, and to be ready to share of Holy Communion together.